Chapter 9 of Notwithstanding by Mary Chumley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Oh, is the water sweet and cool, gentle and brown above the pool, and laughs the immortal river still under the mill, under the mill? Rupert Brooke. I do not think you have ever heard of the little village of Riff in Losher, reader, unless you were born and bred in it, as I was. If you were, you believe, of course, that it is the centre of the world. But if you were not, it is possible you may have overlooked it in your scheme of life, or hurried past it in the train reading a novel, not even looking out, as I have done a hundred times, to catch a glimpse of it lying among its water-meadows behind the willows. But unless you know exactly where to look, you can only catch a momentary glimpse, because the ribbon with its fringe of willows makes a half-circle round Riff, and guards it from inquisitive eyes. Parallel with the Ryburn, but half a mile away from it on higher ground, runs the great white high-road from London to Yarmouth, and between the road and the river lies the village of Riff. But you cannot see it, or even the top of its church tower from the road, because the park of Halver Manor comes in between, stretching in long leafy glades of oak and elm and open sward, and hiding the house in its midst, the old Tudor house which has stood closed and shuttered so long, ever since Mr. Manvers died. When at last the park comes to an end, a deep lane breaks off from the main road, and, pretending that it is going nowhere in particular, and that time would be lost in following it, edges along like a homing cat beside the park wall in the direction of Riff, skirting a gate and a cluster of buildings, Lethary, Barn and Dovecote, which are all you can see of Red Riff Farm from the lane. I point it out to you as we pass, for we shall come back there later on. Riff is much nearer than you think, for the ground is always falling a little towards the Ryburn, which is close at hand, though invisible also. And between the park and the river lies the hidden village of Riff. You come upon it quite suddenly at the turn of the lane, with its shallow ford and its pink-plastered cottages sprinkled among its high trees, and its thatched vicarage, and the hermitage, with the honeysuckle over the porch, and the almshouses near the great Italian gates of Halver Manor, and, somewhat apart in its walled garden among its twisted pines, the dower house where Lady Louisa Manvers was living, poor soul, at the time this story was written. I have only to close my eyes, and I can see it all. Can imagine myself sitting with the Miss Blinkets in their little parlour at the Hermitage, with a daguerreotype of the defunct Pear Blinket over the mantelpiece, and Miss Amy's soft voice saying, "'They do say Lady Louisa's cook is leaving to be married, "'but they will say anything at Riff. "'I never believe more than half I hear.' "'The hermitage stood on a little slice of ground "'which fell away from the lane. "'So close was the hermitage to the lane, "'and the parlour windows were so low, "'and the lane beyond the paling so high, "'that the inmates could only guess "'at the identity of the passers-by by their legs.' and rare guests and rarer callers, arriving in the wagonette from the Manvers arms, could actually look into the bedroom windows, while the Miss Blinkett's eyes, peering over the parlour muslins, were fixed upon their lower limbs. And if I keep my eyes tightly shut, and the eyes of memory open, I can see, as I sit stroking Miss Blinkett's cat, the legs of the new vicar pass up the lane, outlined against a lilac skirt. And Miss Amy, who is not a close observer of life, opines that the skirt belongs to Miss Janie Manvers, 
Miss Blinkett Senior instantly identifies it as Annette's new spotted muslin, which she had seen Mrs. Nichols getting up last week. But that was twenty years ago. I can only tell you what Riff was like then, for it is twenty years since I was there, and I am not going there any more, for I don't want to see any of the changes which time must have wrought there. And if I walked down the village street now, I should feel like a ghost, for only a few of the old people would remember me. And the bright-eyed, tower-headed little lads whom I taught in Sunday school are scattered to the four winds of heaven. The Boer War took some of them, and London has engulfed more. Only a few remaining at Riff as sad-looking middle-aged men, farmhands and hedgers and ditchers and cowmen. And I hear now the motors go banging along the Yarmouth High Road day and night, and the Riff actually has a telegraph office of its own, and that the wires go in front of the Hermitage, only the Miss Blinkets are not there to see it. A literary lady lives there now, and I hear she has changed the name to Quill Cottage, and has made a garden in the orchard where old Nan's cottage was by the twisted pear-tree. Old Nan the witch, who grew mistletoe in all the trees in her domain, and cured St. Vitus' dance with it. No, I will not go to Riff any more, for I do not want to see any of these things, and least of all the literary lady who is writing her novels in the quiet rooms where my two old friends knitted and read Thomas Kempis. Twenty years ago, in the days when my father was doctor at Riff, and when Annette came to live there, we could not help noticing, indeed Mrs. Nichols often mentioned it, what a go-ahead place Riff was, far more up-to-date than Sweet Apple Tree, and even than Merverley Mill. We measured everything in those days by Sweet Apple Tree, and the measurement was always in our favour. We did not talk much about Rybenbridge, where the sizes were held, and the new Silum had just been built. We were somewhat awed by Rybenbridge, but poor, lag-behind, sweet apple tree, lost amid its reeds, together with the Ribon, was the subject of sincere pity to the Riff folk. The sweet applers, according to Mrs. Nichols, were that clunch they might have been brought up in a wood. At Riff everything was cast in a superior and more modern mould. Riff had a postman on a bicycle with an enormous front wheel, and if he brought a letter in the morning, you could, if necessary, post an answer to it the same day in the red slit in the churchyard wall. Now at Sweet Apple Tree, the old man in a donkey cart, blowing on a little horn, who brought the Sweet Apple letters, took away directly the donkey was rested, those which the inhabitants had just composed. And even he did not call, if the water was out. Before I was born, when the Miss Blinkets were young and crinolined, and their father was vicar of Riff, Sweet apple-tree, as they have often told me, had no choir, and the old rector held a service once or twice a year in his bath-chair. After he took to his bed, there was no service at all for twenty years. No wonder the sweet apple folk were clunch. How different from Riff, with its trombone and fiddle inviting the attention of its creator every Sunday, and Mr. Blinkett, whose watchword was no popery. It was Mr. Jones, Mr. Blinkett's successor, that lamentable person, meaning well, but according to the Miss Blinkets, quite unable to perceive when a parish was worked on the right lines. It was young Mr. Jones from Oxford, who did not marry either of the Miss Blinkets, but who did put a stop to the trombone and fiddle, and actually brought the choir out of the gallery, and took away the hourglass from the south window below the pulpit, and preached in his surplice, 
and made himself very unpopular by forbidding the congregation to rise to its feet when the Manvers family came into church, almost as unpopular as by stopping the fiddle. You can see the old fiddle still in the cottage of Hesketh the carrier, next to the village stocks. His father had played on it, and turned chapel when his services were no longer required. And it was young Mr. Jones who actually had the bad taste openly to deplore the saintly Blinkett's action in demolishing all the upper parts of the ancient carved and gilded screen, because at eighty he could no longer make his voice heard through it. It was, of course, Mr. Jones who started the mixed choir sitting in the chancel behind the remains of the screen. In the last days of the mixed choir, when first Mr. Black came to Riff, after Mr. Jones was made a bishop, Annette sang in it, with a voice that seemed to me, and not to me only, like the voice of an angel. With the exception of Annette and the underhouse maid from the Dower House, it was mainly composed of admirable domestic characters of portly age, the elite of Riff, supplemented by a small gleaning of deeply virtuous, non-fruit-stealing little boys. We are told nowadays that heredity is nothing, but when I remember how those starched and white-collared juvenile singers were nearly all the offspring of the tenors and basses, and of Mrs. Nichols and Mrs. Cox, who were trebles, I feel the last word still remains to be said about heredity. Annette did not sing in it long, not more than a year, I think. It was soon after she left it that Mr. Black, so I am told, started a surplus choir. And here am I talking about her leaving the choir, when I have not yet told you of her arrival in Losher, or anything about Redriff Farm, where her two aunts lived, and where Aunt Maria wrote her famous novel, The Silver Cross, of which you have, of course, often heard, and which, if you are of a serious turn of mind, you have doubtless read and laid to heart. End of chapter 9